When a case has gone unsolved for as long as the investigation into the Long Island serial killer, it can seem as if there's no end in sight. But it often takes a single piece of evidence to find the prime suspect. You know, something like a belt left behind at one of the murder scenes or maybe a DNA sample left behind on a car door handle. The latter was all it took to apprehend one of the country's most infamous serial murderers, the Golden State Killer. Authorities say this person committed at least 12 homicides, 45 rapes, and dozens of burglaries across California in the 1970s and 1980s. Police made a major breakthrough using DNA. Joseph D'Angelo had been lurking in the shadows for decades before investigators with the district attorney's office in Contra Costa County, California, used the latest in DNA technology to track down the killer back in 2018. Like the Lisk case, the Golden State Killer left many victims in his wake and was able to hide in plain sight. But all it took was the discovery of D'Angelo's DNA to apprehend him and bring him to justice. One of the key investigators in that case believes that the Long Island serial killer can be found the same way with a single sample of DNA. I'm Laura Engel, and on this bonus podcast episode of Grim Tide, Hunting the Long Island Serial Killer, I sit down for an in-depth interview with cold case investigator Paul Holes, where he explains how he used genetic genealogy to apprehend the Golden State Killer and how he believes that the same methods could be used to solve this case. It was back in June of 2021 when I traveled to Colorado Springs to sit down for an interview with Paul Holes for Grim Tide. His expertise as an investigator was a vital perspective for this series. And truth be told, Holes is someone I have been wanting to interview since 2018 when he helped investigators track down and apprehend Joseph D'Angelo. You see, I grew up in Sacramento, California in the late 70s and remember the terror that was the Golden State Killer and what that had cast upon our community. He was the real-life boogeyman of my childhood. So the opportunity to speak with one of the lead investigators who tracked down the infamous D'Angelo was something that I felt I needed to do. So we'll start with the easy stuff first. Okay. Name and title. Paul Holes. I'm a retired cold case investigator out of Contra Costa County DA's office. All right. And when did you retire? I retired at the end of March 2018. And how long were you active? I was within law enforcement in a variety of capacities for 27 and a half years. Tell me a little bit about your career and specifically about how you got into cold cases. How does that start? Where did you start with that? Well, I initially was hired as a civilian forensic scientist. And ultimately, my sheriff's office, the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office, required the criminalist position that would be going out to doing crime scene investigation and working in firearms, trace, fingerprints, etc., to be a sworn officer. During our conversation, Holes recalls what had made him interested in solving cold cases. So when I got promoted into that position, I went to the police academy, and this is in 1994. During this time, I had read a book called Sexual Homicide, Patterns and Motive, which now the Netflix TV show Mindhunter is based on. Mm -hmm. So I became interested in serial predators as well as cold cases. And once I 
started working in this position, I was assigned to the serology unit and we we're getting DNA on board, which is the perfect technology. This is brand new DNA in forensic science at the time, and it would be perfect to be employed on these cold cases. And the very first cold case I ran across, which was just coincidental, I opened up a, an old file drawer and inside are files with the red EAR on the tab. And I was like, oh, what's this? And pretty soon I'm looking at what appears to be an unsolved series of rapes. That EAR ultimately stood for East Area Rapist. And I didn't know, but that set me on a journey that you know was 24 years long that culminated in the case being renamed to the Golden State Killer and then employing new DNA technology. A quarter of a century later, this mm -hmm. genealogy identified Joseph D'Angelo as the Golden State Killer. And you were largely responsible for that. I had a, a role in pursuing that technology, yes. When does a case turn cold? How long does it take from, like, the investigators are on their last thread, there's nowhere left to go, that is when it becomes a cold case? It is so variable. Uh, there is never a time within law enforcement where a case is going, well, it's now active and we're putting it on the cold case shelf. Usually cases wither away, and it's in, in part because of an investigator that's assigned ends up getting other cases, and those other cases end up consuming his time, his resources, and then pretty soon this other case hasn't been touched, possibly for years, and then that investigator retires or moves on. That is what you see over and over again. However, in some departments, notably departments that have a lot of gun violence, a lot of drug-related gang activities, those investigators are running around from one case to another. Every night they're being called out, and if they catch a case that requires much more in-depth investigation, let's say there is a, a, a sexually motivated homicide of a woman, um, they may work on it for a day, and next thing you know they're out again, and then this case never gets any attention. So oftentimes with these very busy departments, you see that case go cold very quickly. I want to go back to the East Area Rapist. Um, as we've discussed before we got on camera, I'm from Sacramento, and yeah. so this was the boogeyman of my childhood. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, it rained such terror on the greater Sacramento area. And for so long, so many people thought, is this ever going to be solved? We started pursuing what ultimately solved the case in 2017. He started out as East Area Rapist in mm -hmm. 1976 up there in Sacramento. So now you're talking almost you know, 40 years, mm -hmm. 41 years. Right. And when you got involved, 1994? 1994, yes. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Holes says that as DNA technology improved, so did tracking down the Golden State Killer. Through the use of genetic genealogy, in which DNA samples are used to build a sort of family tree, it can lead to naming potential suspects. The investigators were able to then determine that Joseph D'Angelo, a former cop, was the prime suspect in the decades-long Golden State Killer case.
Let's talk about some of the cold cases that you've been able to solve before we get into our case. I want to talk specifically about the Golden State Killer and about that very tender time where you realized that something could be done with DNA. Over time, as I got more into the investigative side and I started investigating the case, I still maintained the, the expertise, of course, when it comes to the forensic side and the DNA. So as new technologies came on board, I would pursue those new technologies. And this includes going after an old form of genealogy, this YSTRs, where you might be able to discover the, the father's side of the offender's family. Going after phenotyping, you know, what are the physical characteristics of the Golden State Killer based on the DNA that he left behind many decades? And then ultimately, the genetic genealogy component that that solved the case. The FBI saying he's a white male, now between ages 60 and 75 years old. I'm shocked, I'm shocked. That's all I'm saying, I'm shocked. Investigators continue to seize items from D'Angelo's suburban Sacramento home. It's kind of crazy, really, because I live right behind him and have my entire life So since I was a little kid. So it was staying on top of the technology over decades until it got to a point where it could solve the case. And that's ultimately the cases that I have been involved with that have been solved, notably Wild Bill Huff. Mitch Bacon was arrested for the Suzanne Bombardier case, a 1980 homicide. These cases were solved because technology improved. And I had a role in recognizing I can employ or have a lab employ the technology in order to be able to help solve that case. Um, I've had a role in helping solve cases but I've got many cases that I have worked that are still unsolved to this day. And what does that do to you as an investigator? Those, those cases, they do haunt you. I mean, there are certain cases where I feel I need to get back to them. You know, I, I sit and I think about some of these victims. I, have, I can envision the photos of, of the victims in my head. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I can't let that case, you know, I retired, but I can't let that case go. I need to get back to it. Or I need to call somebody up and say, hey, consider doing this. Right. You know, it's just that connection is always going to be there. Can you tell me about the reverse family tree that you did? So the, the, the genetic genealogy component, the, the way that works is, of course, we're working cases and the offender has left his DNA behind. So now it's generating a DNA profile that is compatible with searching these genealogy databases that people have uploaded their, gene, their DNA profiles in order to be able to find family links that they don't know about. Get the offender's genealogy profile uploaded into a, a database and there's a list of potential relatives based on the amount of DNA they share with the offender. At this point, it's now, don't worry about the offender. It's like, okay, I've got this list of names. I don't care who these people are unless they share so much DNA, they're the brother or the sister of the person I'm looking for. They're typically third cousins, fourth cousins, people that the offender has no idea exist, that they're even related. They're starting data points to build family trees for each of these people to try to triangulate between two of them to see, oh, I've got two people from this list that have a common ancestor. Mm -hmm. Once I find that common ancestor, let's say a great-great-grandparent, theoretically, my offender 
is a descendant of that same set of great-great-grandparents. Mm -hmm. So I got the common ancestors. Now it is using just standard genealogy, identifying all the descendants mm -hmm. until I drop into the generation of family members in which I believe my offender would belong. And for example, with the Golden State Killer, we were confident that he was born between 1940 and 1960. And in building the common ancestors that we use were great-great-grandparents. These were people who were born in the 1840s. And we built a family tree that consisted of thousands. And then ultimately we landed in on a California branch mm -hmm. with a small number of individuals of males of the right age. And then at that point, it's just investigation 101. Who are these men? And could any of them be somebody that we need to look at closer to being the person that is responsible for the Golden State Killer crimes. And you have that narrowed down to a list? And were you able to pick them off? These names come up as the family tree is being built. Mm -hmm. And so I'd be, take a name and I'd be, okay, who is this person? And then based on the characteristics I knew about the offender, mm -hmm. does this person add up or not? Do they have the same geography that I know where the Golden State Killer was over the course of between 1976 and 1986, for example? Physically, do they match? the Golden State Killer, because in our series, we had so many living victims who could say he was roughly 5'8", 5'10", 160, 180 pounds. Mm -hmm. If I have one of these family members that's 6'5", pretty confident he's not the guy I'm looking for, so I don't have to do as much work on him. Mm -hmm. So it really is just, this is just traditional investigative tactics at this point until Oh, this person has enough to where we need to get a direct DNA to see if he matches the DNA left behind at the crime scene. Fast forward to the moment where you guys realized that you were down to one suspect and you realized that this could be the guy. He matched everything through and through and then you went and got a DNA sample from him but him not knowing. With D'Angelo, I ended up boots on the ground just trying to figure out who this man was and reached out to uh, an ex-fiance and ended up talking to a police chief who had fired him and what the police chief told me about D'Angelo and how during the termination process and D'Angelo was on admin leave his daughter had come in the middle of the night and said dad there's a man standing outside my bedroom window shining a flashlight in mm -hmm. And he's going, Paul, I know that was D'Angelo. He didn't even know I was looking at the Golden State Killer case. He's going, God, this guy, he's just, he was a weird duck. Yeah. And I was like, hang on, that's what the Golden State Killer would do. So it's that kind of characteristic where it's like, I think I need to get his DNA. And then ultimately, the FBI and Sack Sheriff's Office followed D'Angelo around. And when the first sample was collected from a car door handle when he went into a Hobby Lobby store. And then when the DNA results came back a few days later, it was a mixed sample, but the predominant contributor to that mixture matched the Golden State Killer. So at this point, I knew D'Angelo was a Golden State Killer, but we needed to get a second clean sample, and ultimately a trash grab was done, and that's where a clean sample from D'Angelo was obtained, and it matched 100% the Golden State Killer's DNA. When we look at that case, and decades long, why, why hasn't that technology been used for every single cold case? Is it manpower? Is it money? Politics? 
Well, there's a lot of, uh, everything you said does have an impact as to what technology is going to be employed. But first and most critical is, is that technology suitable for the evidence that's available in the case? And this is where in evaluating any case, and in, in, in particular we're, we're talking DNA evidence, is there confidence that whatever DNA evidence has been obtained, it's from the offender? You guys used an open source genealogy company, right? What if Joseph D'Angelo's distant relatives used a genealogy website that was protected? Would you not have identified him? Well, it's, it's more complicated than that in terms of what we employed with the Golden State Killer. I did upload D'Angelo's or the Golden State Killer's profile to GEDmatch, which is this open source genealogy database. But we had also worked with Family Tree DNA, and that was very much behind the scenes at the time. But we had gotten search results out of Family Tree DNA, who is the one company that has basically said, yes, we are permitting law enforcement to search our mm -hmm. database. And then ultimately, Barbara Ray Venter, the genealogist, had uh, done under her own volition a search of my heritage, and that's where we got the second cousin. Now, it took us four, four months with the search results that we got. Now, if we had been able to search Ancestry.com or 23andMe, we may have found first cousins for right. D'Angelo, and right. it would have taken us a few days. So more cases can be solved if uh, larger databases are being accessed. Holes believes that the investigators on Long Island can use the same methods to track down Lisk, building a family tree to locate possible suspects. Can this case be solved? Yes, this case can be solved. But again, it's hard. This is not an easy case to solve. And there are complexities with the evidence. There are complexities with the victimology. Mm -hmm. There are complexities with the age of some of these cases now. Like you said, the, the Golden State Killer case is very different. The victims are very different. Is it possible that that type of DNA technology and advancement in that technology could be used here in this case? Yes. The the advancement in the technology, and, and I'll break the advancement in the technology down into to three primary uh, steps. Mm -hmm. It's the location and sampling of potential DNA evidence. It's the extraction of the DNA material, and then ultimately it's the typing. Each phase of this DNA process has undergone just revolutionary jumps in terms of the ability to go after difficult low-level samples like what they have in this case or most likely have in this case so this is the time if they have not pursued it or if they have not pursued technology within the last five years it is now time to do that and it is possible to find dna on in some of these cases, which could solve the case. What type of DNA technology is going on right now that could help? Well, from the sampling side is, you know, within the last few years, we are seeing instead of just relying on a cotton swab and swabbing an area, which is an effective method, there's now, for example, the MVAC technology, which is a, an instrument that, in essence, puts a, a liquid out onto the item that you're sampling and sucks the liquid up and concentrates that sample and it's shown 
to be much more sensitive than mm -hmm. the typical standard sampling technology. That could be used on the burlap or the that, belt. That could be used on the belt. The burlap, you need to have the people who are experts in that technology to see is there something that they could do with it. The typing technology has improved dramatically in terms of its sensitivity. And that's what I saw in that 1980 case where the previous generation of typing failed to get a CODIS qualifying profile from this external swab off of a woman's body that had been found floating in a river for several days. Mm -hmm. And then the next generation of technology off the same DNA sample produced a full CODIS qualifying profile that hit to the offender in the database. DNA evidence has proven to become a vital part of any open investigation, helping to bring many criminals to justice. But it can still have limitations, as Holes described during our interview. There's no question it's a revolutionary tool. But it's not necessarily... If you get offender DNA in order to generate a traditional law enforcement profile that can search FBI's CODIS, mm -hmm. all right, so you can solve the case with the FBI's CODIS system without resorting to genealogy. However, the FBI's CODIS system is predicated upon the repeat offender. You have to have somebody in that, they're in that database because they've committed a crime. It may not be the same type of crime, and it may be a crime that occurred either before or after the crime that you're investigating, but it's predicated on the repeat offender versus the genealogy. A lot of these cases, which are, you know, these types of cases, you know, these are sexual violence, homicide against women and children that have been unsolved for decades. What they're finding is, is a lot of these offenders who are committing these crimes, which, you know, if I were to look at it without knowing, think, yeah, this is a predator. He's serial. Turns out, no, they're one-offs. They're not the repeat offender. And that's the power of the technology is that you got a guy that commits this type of crime, leaves his DNA, but never does anything to get into a database, whether it be a DNA database or a fingerprint database, or even you know just a, the attention of law enforcement. Can that blueprint be moved over here to this case and used in an effective way despite the decades, despite the years that have passed? There, there's no question that that technology can be used in this case, provided that they have a DNA source in order to use that technology. And, and this is where the technology's power is identifying that unknown offender. And But that offender's DNA first has to be located. That's where you know the resources have to be. If they can get that DNA sample and search the genealogy database, now they can work their way from the relatives to land on him. And it's something that he can't control. Investigators in Suffolk County are using much of the same technology that Holes had used while on the Golden State Killer case. He says that the methods to obtain and test DNA samples have improved greatly since he was on the job in 2018. But only time will tell if investigators have found that one simple strand of DNA that's needed to catch the Long Island serial killer. I'm Laura Ingle, and this has been Grim Tide, hunting the Long Island serial killer. On our next episode, we speak with the attorney who is still seeking justice for Shannon Gilbert and, in turn, all the victims of Lisk. Thanks for listening.
This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.